Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 87 of Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. It's the podcast in which I, your humble host and guide, Daryl Edge, take you, the listener, with me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. And what is that, you may ask? Well, it's the only the most pure, emotional, highest, spiritual, physical, ethereal, all-consuming state of being that you can possibly achieve in this life or the next. And how do we get there, you ask? Well, it's simple. We watch every film the man I call the golden hog of Hollywood, Nicolas Cage, has ever been in. Hope you've all had a very good week. Um, this week we jump a little bit ahead to 2019 to check out the action thriller A Score to Settle. I was joined by new guest Steve Cadis from Cadis Media to talk all about this one uh, and this was so much fun to record. I um, had a very very good time recording this one with Steve. So we start off with a brief chat about uh, some Nick Cage history before we move into um, going into a bit more detail about this movie, we talk about the film's depiction of Insomnia, a 38-year-old baby. It makes sense in context, sort of, I promise, kind of. This film's difficulty in juggling its three plots, what Pokemon we think Nicolas Cage would be, and most importantly, beef. A lot of fun to be had in this one. Uh, as ever, you can find me on all the usual social media. Links in the description down below. And if you enjoyed the episode, please consider giving it a like, sharing it, and leaving a rating on your listening platform of choice. It very much helps, and I very much appreciate it. With that said, let's get into the episode. It's episode 87, Daryl Edge, Steve Kalis, a score to sell. Done. It's time to kick off 2019 this week with the action thriller A Score to Settle. Here, Cage is playing Frank Carver, an ex-enforcer who plans revenge against a local mob after being wrongfully imprisoned for 19 years. Joining me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week to see if this film is truly a winning score or if it just needs to settle down is Steve Kalis of Kalis Media. Steve, how are you doing? Hi, bud. Yeah, yeah. Good. I'm feeling good. I've been excited about this. Do you know, I was so excited about this that I forgot what date we were doing it. And this time <laughs> last week, I was sat very much like this, prepared, ready to go. <laughs> and uh, I realized I was a week early. So I'm very prepared. I'm ready to go. <laughs> You've been prepared for a week. I've been sat here. I haven't moved for seven days waiting for you to jump online. So it's been there. Uh, but that means I've been thinking and philosophizing all about this movie. You've almost spent as much time in your room waiting as Cage's character has in prison at this point. So, <laughs> Yeah, I went very method with my podcasting on this one. You're the most method guest I've had on <laughs> on the podcast so far, um, which is great to see. But you say that as well, though. I, I very nearly watched the wrong film today. Um, 
Oh no, this, this almost went terribly wrong, didn't it? This whole podcast thing. <laughs> I, I almost just deleted the Twitter account, just left the country <laughs> under an assumed name. Because there's a few films around this point in 2019 which are kind of like uh, late cage action films and quite similar in sort of content. Um, and it was it was a 50-50 which one I watched. It just so happened that I made sure to... Um, Put it in my Excel spreadsheet, make a note to myself in my phone, email cell to remind myself. Three reminders. I still I still got it wrong. Um yet yeah, here we are. We've made it somehow by the grace of God, the grace of the golden hog himself. Absolutely. Um so I've got uh so I expect at some point in the episode we'll get round to talking about the movie. And uh I've I listened to a couple of your previous episodes and You've done some wonderful analysis on the films. In fact, I listened to an episode just before we came on. I was listening to it at work. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not nearly prepared enough because that was some really detailed analysis. But what I have got, and these are the only cons I could find, right? These are strange ones that sort of stuck with me. Sure. Um, and these aren't going to make much sense, so I'll explain later on probably. But the kid in the pram looked 36. This is referring to, <laughs> <laughs> this is referring to the, the kid in the pram at the end. Um. I've also written down, bear in mind, I watched this a week ago and I don't really remember a lot of these notes and what they refer to, so we'll go into it, but unreasonable amount of chest hair, but only once. I've written that down, so we can go to that. <laughs> um, and weird forced relationship with the sex worker lady. So that's what we've got to explore later on in the episode. You had me at point one. You mm. reeled me in by point three. <laughs> um, signed, sealed, delivered. I was very much... Yours, um, yeah, so it's a good start. Look, all, all these teasers uh, the 36 year old boy, um, <laughs> co- coming, coming 2024. Um, um, now, but with those tantalizing teasers there in the ether, uh, now settling down, uh, I always like to kick these podcasts off as well, especially with new guests such as yourself, um, and to ask. Uh, for yourself, uh, Nicholas Cage, rate, hate, tolerate, uh, where do you stand uh, on the man I call the Golden Hog of Hollywood? Yes, and since listening to your show, I, I also call him that now. Uh, <laughs> it's so catching I've, on, I've yes. That. Yeah, yeah, it's spreading like wildfire down here. So um, I think <laughs> he is... The the problem, like say this film that we just watched, right, uh, A Score to Sell, the problem with Nicholas Cage is that he's so good, right? I think he's like... A, the way I described it to my partner was when you're conveying an emotion of any kind as an actor, you can take two, one of two likely paths. You can be you know, subtle with the emotion or you can really, you can really convey what you're trying to do. Nicholas Cage in every single line he delivers, he finds a third alternate way to deliver the line, to deliver, you know, convey his character. And it's magic and it's wonderful. I can't take my eyes off him when he's on the screen. I think he's such a magnetic performer. But the problem is with that is if you've got a hundred percent, human being who's radiating like that you have it's really hard to get a cast that matches what he's doing and a director and a you know and he just seems to be uh so in terms of acting i just i rate him so highly he's unbelievable um but the i just maybe you can explain this is one of the questions i've got for you down the line but maybe you can explain what is with these these sort of crap in the bag projects that he takes on sometimes where you think why are you nicholas cage a part of this yeah, almost like B movies type deal. It's it's a weird one because on one hand, um, especially at this point of his career, well, well the twenty tens, I think for for the broadest overview possible, 
by this point he hadn't had like a live action film in cinemas since 2012, which I think was Ghost Rider Spirits of Vengeance. He'd had the first Croods by ah, this that point. That some way to explaining the decline. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I distinctly remember seeing that cinema in the film with my with my friend Ben. Um, and I had the, the best time revisiting it 10 years later. Turns out time is a horrible thing. Um, <laughs> leave the memories alone. Um, but there have been a number of financial troubles at this point. So if you just look at his filmography, you will see probably about 50 films you've never heard of, like a score to settle, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the finances were part of it. He's was in a bit of financial trouble. I think he was too proud to declare bankruptcy. So he was. He said, I'd rather just work my way through my problems. Infamously, there was a dinosaur skull that he'd purchased. Um, it turns out it had been stolen from like a Mongolian museum. Um, so that, <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah of that, course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stand, it's standard stuff. Standard. Well, fare. I mean, that's, I've got a. I, I wondered if um, we would get on to a sort of uh, you know trivia style conversation about him, and I didn't know enough about his sort of personal life, so I gathered my favourite facts about Nick Cage. Maybe I'll drop them in as the episode goes on. Um, but man, it, I was reading these facts, and I, I haven't verified them, but it seems like a legitimate thing, and you would be able to verify them probably. Um, but man, what an extraordinary life, what an extraordinary, what an extraordinary <laughs> unusual life he's led. It is, I mean, a life that only Nicolas Cage could live. He's got yeah. this kind of, I've, I've said it quite a while ago, but almost this, um, this Bigfoot-esque mystique, uh, mm-hmm. and almost when you just say it, it's like a Family Guy plot generator is his life. If you say, <laughs> like almost Cluedo, like Nicolas Cage in this with this item in this location, and like this is a thing, but uh, that Nicolas yeah. Cage did it, and people be like, yeah, I believe that entirely. <laughs> well, here's some of the headlines that I've pulled from this. These are just sort of the titles of the paragraphs of these <laughs> Nicolas Cage facts. So we start off um, in relatively bleak territory. He was the victim of a massive comic book heist. Right. Did you know about this? And, uh, yeah, well, so what? Oh, yeah, that's the super, he bought the Superman comic and it got stolen, but then it was retrieved years later. That's that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the next headline is, a naked home intruder ate a fudgicle at the foot of his bed. Now, that a fudgicle is, is a, some kind of American lollipop, I assume. But, <laughs> but uh, yes. that in itself is a remarkable headline. He slept in Dracula's castle. Excellent. I believe that's also true, yes. He bought a pyramid tomb in New Orleans. That's where he's. It, hey, you know, you're, you're the man for the job. You're the man for this podcast. When you've been in this rabbit hole as long as I have, <laughs> and um, I know that there's other uh, another Nicholas Cage podcast that I said the same thing uh, called Caged In, um, and Petros, the host, that said something that is now completely applicable to me. I can't remember the last time that a day went by and I did not Google Nicholas Cage. I'm sick. <laughs> I'm a sick, sick man. <laughs> well, there's a lot to. Uh, there's a lot there. Uh, like you said, he accidentally brought a stolen dinosaur skull. Exactly. It happens. It happens. He bought the. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he bought the most there. haunted mansion in the world so he could write a horror novel. I don't know if he ever wrote that novel. I think he was just bragging points at this stage. <laughs> and uh, he once tripped out on mushrooms with his cat. He said he said he did that, but then he's late. I think he said in a New York Times interview uh, around 2019 that he didn't do drugs. So the jury's out on that one. 
he might or might not have tripped out with his cat. Part of me hopes it's true, but also... That seems like the, the, the story duality of a man who has frequently tripped out with his cat. Who he doesn't know whether it's real or not anymore, so that would lead me to think that perhaps it is. So. <laughs> there, are, there are times I look at my cat and I think, the life we could have. <laughs> Without all this social stigma. <laughs> so the, the, the stigma of a, a very horrible, horrible stigma in the cat community of a drug taking, they're still getting over the whole catnip thing, yeah, just bringing no, mushrooms no. into the equation. <laughs> but it's, it, I mean, even that though, it's just like, a Cajun tip of the iceberg. It's um, like a thousand lifetimes condensed into nearly 60 years of life. And Mm. um, it's always just fascinating whenever he does anything. Um, He was, I think he's got, he's got properties in the UK as well because he's quite an Anglophile. Near near where I am. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's this cage in the air, this cage in the water. (laughs) Well, quite, quite literally, he came to Glastonbury to hunt for the Holy Grail once. Um, Good idea. And then he, I think he found a stream that's meant to taste like blood um, in a very national treasure-esque escapade of his <laughs> own life. I think it was just more that the, the river or the stream just tasted like iron, and then he think he settled on the rather, you know, I, I guess technically answer of, the world is the Holy Grail. Like, oh, boo, but also, mm. yes... <laughs> I guess. Oh, that's a profound realisation. <laughs> by the way, we'll get to uh, National Treasure. For me, that and Con Air is peak Cage. That's peak Nicolas Cage, both of his films. Um, so uh, when I was looking into sort of Nicolas Cage and all these extraordinary things in his life, I was wondering, have you ever Googled or investigated um, Saruman, Christopher Lee, and the life that he led? Because his is very... His life is almost equally as extraordinary, but in much more with much more serious and dark undertones. I know that he was he was a soldier. He was in the war, I think. And I, I remember yeah. there, was a, there was a story of one of the Lord of the Rings films when a character was, or he was being stabbed in the back and he was telling Peter Jackson, that's not the sound someone makes when they're stabbed in the back. Mm. Believe me, I know. And then yeah. you're like, yep, do what he said. <laughs> that's... <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah, but it's, look, he's just, he just, I just brought it up so you, know, you might have some fun digging into it because his life is like, he was almost married to a princess. He was part of a rock band. He was this, this, that. Yeah, and you go, but yeah, is that the same? It's the same guy. It's just an extraordinary, they're two men whose lives are, they sort of transcend the normal human narrative. They, they did their own thing. So I thought, yeah, you might find him, uh, yeah, his story interesting. I think it'd be fascinating. Cause, I mean, I know in his sort of last years with this, he, he was part of a, it was like an operatic metal album or something. He didn't yeah, release right. a metal <laughs> album. I think to this day, to my to my discredit, I I never ended up listening to it. But I was like, you get you get to certain stages at your life when you're like, why not release a metal album? I'm Christopher Lee. Why wouldn't I? I, I am I'm Hammer. Dracula. I am Hammer Horror. Why why wouldn't I release a metal yeah. album? And um, I think it's only a matter of time before. Cage releases a metal album as well. It wouldn't surprise me if he's been, yeah, one aspect of Metallica, or he is Iron Maiden, or it turns out that he's just been in really method, and he has been part of a successful metal band for you know thirty years. He's just that, or you know, when when he you know, and 
God forbid, when he eventually passes one day. I've got a feeling he's going to be one of those people who, you know, the novel will be revealed in his bedside table. He'll have the novel. He'll have 20 years of, you know, metal recordings. And, you know, a new Cage legend will be born off the back of that, I think. That's the <laughs> feeling they get from him. <laughs> it's like uh, almost a kind of Batman Rises thing where the, the, the namesake, the legacy outweighs the... Uh, yeah, the it's become a symbol. <laughs> he's just... When when I cast uh, my cage beacon into the sky, <laughs> and the message of hope that that represents, <laughs> his his legacy truly honoured. Yeah, um, that'd be a powerful statement. But it is my prevailing theory that he will never die, and I'll be doing this part. This, this podcast will outlive me. I will have to pass it over to my um, fictitious at this point firstborn. <laughs> I'm like this. This is very important, Daryl Jr. Which unisex name could be any gender, we don't know. But Daryl Jr., do this for your old man. And then they look at Mommy, why is, why is Dad scaring me? He's, he's, been, he's ill. Your, your dad's been off his meds for years. <laughs> but what, what do you do? I mean, you, you, must get to, you must be encroaching a point where you've yeah you know, the podcast is you've watched all the films so and it's what a year between releases maybe because i know that next one is next one coming up was it the unbearable weight of incredible talent or whatever it's called um i watched a trailer for that yesterday and man am i excited for that that looks amazing yeah i think at the point of recording we've just had the red band trailer for unbearable weight of massive talent which is out. that's the one yeah that's all i say i mean massive incredible same difference <laughs> just, just another superlative it's pretty good <laughs> I'm just desperately trying to get like a screener or something, but it's not going to happen. They'll, they'll just say like, "Is what they'll say to me." Little spit on me. Is the cage sort of? Uh, is the cage movement the cage people? Or is are they aware that you're doing this? Have you managed to uh, to make contact with anyone in the cage sphere? I mean, I'm trying desperately to interact with like the movie Twitter and just be like, "Notice me, senpai. Notice me." <laughs> <laughs> but there's a. You know, you're also dealing with, I mean, there's probably one or two people running that account and it's just some poor intern like, oh God, this lunatic, he's back <laughs> again. <laughs> and I will have my vengeance. I will get I will get my just rewards, God damn it, um, in this life or the next. <laughs> when I send them that journey to Cage Nirvana and I'm greeted by the golden hog at the golden gates. <laughs> Hello, that's magic. Yeah, no, it's so magical. But I also theorise as well that, like, what if hypothetically one day Nick Cage, for some reason, reasons unknown, became aware of this podcast and I got to meet him? I imagine his words to me would just be, stop. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd see me just slowly fade, my body become atoms and DNA, just. Just. <laughs> <laughs> I think he'd love it. I think he's. Uh, I think he'd appreciate it. Because I it's think, not like a, it's not like you're, you know, you you are, you know, fairly critical of the films and stuff. I think you'd appreciate it. I think you'd appreciate this because uh, I think you'd like the vibe. Because it's not like, I mean, it's a it's a niche podcast. I mean, as soon as I saw what you were doing, I came across your Twitter, and I thought, oh yeah, I'd lo- I could talk Nicholas Cage all day. That sounds amazing. So I'm I'm fully on board. Well, always room for more on the journey to true Cage of Iron, as I always say. <laughs> a few of us out there trying to do God's work. Um, yeah. <laughs> but again, I say when I when I inevitably perish with these stupid mortal bones of mine, mm. I hope when Cage is like 150, still looking great, he's got like mm. his, his cape on. My my dying wish 
is that he snorts my ashes. My dying wish is that he ingests me. So I can, I can be one in death. I'm calling it now. I'm calling it now. That's the way I want to go out. It used to be before the podcast catapult me into the sun because I don't want to be on this earth anymore. Um, <laughs> I think I think um, both eventualities could be explored by a uh, some kind of specialist, maybe. <laughs> but, uh, but I support you either way. <laughs> if you are a catapult specialist and you're listening to the podcast, please, my DMs are, <laughs> my DMs are always open for giant novelty catapults. Um, so looking into uh, the movie now, a score to settle. Um, as sort of touched on earlier, this is, I think, one of many films around this time period which would have gone under many, many radars, mine included. Uh, this was a first-time watch for me. Um, was this one at all that you'd heard of before? Um, I've never heard of it. But then I've only been... I'm not. I'm, I'm on the periphery of the Nick Cage sort of thing. You know, I get... If he's, in, if he's part of a larger, well-marketed film, I will go and see it. But... Most of the time, I, I'm always surprised to hear, oh, there's another three Nick Cage films all of a sudden, in the, you know, and, I, and that I've dipped my toe into these, and I find myself frustrated and disappointed because I just I think he's great, and I think, man, well, he should be doing these big, wonderful projects. But then he does things like, you know, like I said, that Ghost Rider sequel. And like I said, I enjoyed it at the time. I'm able to switch my sort of analytical brain off and really enjoy it. But I can also then watch it later on and think, man, what a terrible shit show of a film that was. And, you know, and, uh, so I get almost got like, invested in him, so I feel disappointed that he's part of some of these you know, bloody annoying, boring projects. But I was um, surprised by A Score to Sell because it's obviously flawed and it's got its issues. But at the end of it, I thought, hey, yeah, I like that. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, this is, I think, another one of them. Um... I guess, again, a sort of list of films of this time frame, a lot of straight-to-video, straight-to-DVD fare, where um, I think certainly at this point, for me, it's... As much as I try to go into these films and try and not get spoiled and go to it with a fresh pair of eyes, there's also a level of, um, I guess, expectation setting, because there's a number of films like this where you probably get the film that you think you're going to get and you're not going to come out and say, oh, I scored a settle. That was the best film of 2019. One of the best films yeah. that I've seen. Um, and with Rotten, sort of Rotten Tomatoes, for example, it was given it 15% by the critics. It's almost if you take that kind of thing into account. Yeah. Um, it's It wasn't as terrible as I was kind of expecting, but this is also um, a sort of film where... And if this sort of makes any sense, even though I'm watching it for the hour and a half plus runtime that it has, hour 40 minutes, I did forget what was happening whilst I was watching it about yeah. 15 yeah. times. <laughs> about, yeah. about once every 10 minutes, I was like, what? I, I felt like I had his insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. And I know exactly what you mean. It was... Um... It was only temporarily engaging. There was times where you could switch off and then switch back in, and you you can just guess at what has happened. It's not yeah, you know, it's quite predictable in some places. But there was there's some. Let's start with the positives because there were some really there's some parts where I thought ah that that had potential or that sort of stood out right. And for me from the beginning, I thought man, 
it's the same thing I always think with Nicolas Cage movies, where I think, ah, man, the dude's got gravitas. He is a powerful performer. He, he owns that wherever scene that he's in. But I think he struggled. Like, the, the fellow who plays his son, whose name I've got here somewhere, uh, whoever the son is, right? What's the son's name? Uh, Sonny's Joey, played by, hopefully I'm pronouncing this correctly, Noah Legros. Legros. Right. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Noah Legros, we'll say. I've got that there. So... That dynamic struck me as odd because Nicolas Cage is, is such a good actor and this kid could have just been, this fella could have just been sort of plucked off the street. He obviously was a okay actor, like he was a competent actor, but I find, and maybe this is down to Nicolas Cage, maybe he has to sort of dial down the caginess, but I find he swallows every other actor in the scene, right? Except for... Um, Benjamin Bratt, who I thought was a good addition to this. That's where the budget went. Nicolas Cage and Benjamin Bratt, I think, they had to sort of make up the rest of it. But what did you think? I mean, I think they, those two, uh, they were, you could tell that they're more experienced and that Benjamin Bratt has more screen time with big stars because he, he could handle it, I think. No, I entirely agree. This is kind of, um, again, another sort of endemic thing, especially with these straight-to-video films that you've got... the. Uh, the sort of the acting chops and the star power of Nicolas Cage. And even with films like this, where I think 95%, he's very understated in this. He's very sort of grounded in this. Um, And to a larger point in a lot of films like this, he's, he is grounded in a lot more films than you think he is. (laughs) And he doesn't, you know, and no pun intended. He doesn't, Okay, there's one there's one very, very cagey bit right at the end which we'll get to. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we will get to that. Um But he's he's not as cage ragey in a lot of these films as you might think. You'll see, oh another cage film, he's probably just screaming in it. And it really isn't. Um he's he's very grounded. But again it gets back to the point that you were making that um, and I say this with complete conviction and belief and no irony at all, he is such a genuinely talented and brilliant actor that yeah. even in these quieter moments, um, he's, at this not to sound detrimental to the rest of the cast here, but he is out-acting everyone else, I guess yeah. with the exception of Benjamin uh, Bratt, that he's on screen with, he's so watchable yeah. no matter what he's doing. So I agree that with what you said there. I think the guy that played his son was fine. It's one of those roles that could have been played by anyone, really. Yeah. Um, but the scenes he had with Benjamin Bratt, who plays Q, I think were the most interesting ones in there. Because in like the hour 40 that we've got here, it's like 25, 30 minutes of this was interesting. The rest was kind of like... <laughs> He's just going on a spending spree and spending money. Yeah, I did like. Um, I think as a as a father, I think I did connect. I I saw what he was trying to do with his son, and that was sweet. That was a sweet thing. It's a bit sort of everything. I everything about the delivery of what they were trying to do with the film ends ultimately clumsily. Right, that's why I sort of considered at the end. But I thought there was some nice moments with him and the the son, and I thought. I saw what they were trying to do, but some bits were, the pacing was really strange. Some bits were really rushed and quick and bam, 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 bam. there it is. There's character development. There's this person. And then, like you said, there's like, you know, there's a weird sort of spending spree montage that went on forever. And then there's all this you know, <laughs> sort of drags for a little bit. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, but, um, but I mean, yeah, like you said, it wasn't like the kid wasn't a, the son wasn't a bad actor or anything, but I just think 
there's the aura, there's the Cajun aura, and it's very, very hard to, unless you're really experienced, to, to match what he's trying to do. Even if he's being subtle and nuanced in his performance, it's just, you know, it's difficult to compete with him, I guess. It's a difficult thing when you're going up against the greatest, isn't it, really? There's a mm-hmm. film, um, a, a lot of people didn't like it. I've got a soft spot, it, a fil- soft spot for it. There's a film called Willy's Wonderland in which he has no dialogue whatsoever. And he's the, he's the best actor in it. <laughs> and again, it's, it, that, it is intentional. It's the way it's written. Um, yeah. But it, he is just, he's just that good. Um, and I think, like I said, that there's a lot of, um, like spending spree kind of stuff. I suppose to set the scene here, I sort of touched on the intro. Um, he is a former gangster, or he works for an enforcer for a local syndicate. Yeah. It's a bit murky what his relationship with it all actually is. Um, but the lead guy called Max has basically baseball batted someone to death who mm. used to be affiliated with them. Um, he's a witness to it. And so he's. They've said to him, uh, "If you take the fall for this, we'll give you four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, a sort of to sort of pay you off." So he's been in jail for nineteen years. Uh, comes out in uh, 2019, 2020, whenever this film is set, and he also has such severe insomnia that it could kill him, which I didn't know was a thing because they, because mm. it might well be a thing. Like <laughs> you never know, but. It was kind of like the way the film presented it, and I was like, "I don't believe this is real at all." Yeah, yeah, that was the weird. That was it's a weird ticking clock element. Is insomnia like there's a hundred things you you could do first if you're going to introduce a sort of ticking clock, um, you know, peril element to a movie. There's other ways you could do it, I guess. But then that that helps you segue easily to Cage being a little more, you know, unleashing that sort of madness side of him he likes to do sometimes. The, you know, not the ragey stuff, but the sort of, you know, I'm sort of starting to lose my mind thing. He sort of, he's, that's his wheelhouse. And I think the insomnia thing allows him to do that because he's slowly losing his mind a little bit. But you're right. I mean, I know like sleep deprivation, if you, if it's for, yeah, was it like 11 days or something? You can die or whatever it is. But I think, um, I, I, I'm with you. I thought that was a strange element to drop kick in there. It, it was a strange hook for the character. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I mean, you, you, there could have been other ways to do uh, the hallucinations that he has throughout the film. Was that the only illness that he had? Was the insomnia? That's what, wasn't it? Yeah, because they. Yeah, you're right. Because that is weird. Because it was like he was playing it like, and the the film was putting the emphasis on it. Like, oh man, this you know this cancer, this disease is terrible that you have, but. You just needed to get some sleep. So yeah, I'm with you. It was um, it's a bit out of sync. It's, and I just quickly sort of googled there as well. Uh, there was an article from BBC in 2018 which said apparently there is no link between sleepless nights and death, or oh. early death at least. So this whole film's a bust. Podcast over. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Um, but it, it was again. It was just the way it presented it. It was like if you don't get your sleep, you could die. And I was like, mm. lol, the question mark, is this what? Um, <laughs> but my notes here, because they were like, they, they, they sort of stressed to him. And they stressed him, it was like, you have to get your sleep. Uh, you've got such severe insomnia, this could kill you. My first note here was like, this is like reverse crank. Um, <laughs> That's right. 
And then they're like, I found the next funniest thing. Bearing in mind, not even a minute ago, they've said this insomnia is so bad it could kill you. They release him at night when people sleep. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that's a bit tactless. I was like, look, I don't know the ins and outs of the American jail system, but fucking hell, come on, he's yeah, you got a yeah. dead man on your doorstep, him in his bag of baseball bats, just. <laughs> Yeah, I was surprised he was allowed to leave that bag of baseball bats. And you're right, that's a very heavy-handed approach by the uh, the prison system there, isn't it? It's like again, you know, criticise the prison system across the uh, across the old Atlantic Ocean in whatever way you wish. But I thought, you know, seemed a little bit tactless. <laughs> yeah, insensitive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Because um, that's all, that's when he leaves, and then he meets his uh, son, doesn't he? Coming down the road. That's where we're at. Um, yeah, no, you're right. I'll look into that. I'm going to do some googling on the insomnia thing because I, because that is because that seems clumsy by them to have put that as the ticking clock, because you could have just done anything, couldn't you? A tumor, your tumor is going to explode. You, I don't know. You're right. That, that needs more thought, and I'm going to. I'm the man for the job. I'm going to attack that later on as soon as we finish. Yeah. So just there was a, just a quick link under the Google as the Google that I did. I sound like I'm fifty, <laughs> five hundred years old. There's a there's a fatal familial insomnia or FFI, but that's an extremely rare genetic disease that causes progressively worsening sleeplessness. It ter- uh, difficulty sleeping soon turns into total insomnia, causing rapid physical and mental deterioration and death. But that seems to be very, very rare. Um, Why don't we give them the benefit of the doubt and make that head cannon? Because uh, <laughs> otherwise, it's just it's fatigued. I mean, you know, this started at a five-star film and about ten minutes in, I was down to like maybe a one and a half at this point. And I was like, you're, yeah. you're, you're losing me. You're losing me. I'm with because I hate to, I hate to nick, nitpick. And I think I can always, like, you know, a good example is like the Transformers movies. Right? You can turn your brain off and just enjoy the spectacle. But that's not what this is. It's a thing that's inviting you to um, think about the story, to consider what's happening. It's a, you know, it's a movie, that's the kind of film it is. It's not like a explosive Michael Bay thing. And so when it's stuff like that, it does get frustrating because you think, did no one th- consider that for five minutes? And that wasn't that wasn't a legit, or that wasn't a real thing. I mean, you just Googled it. We've just cracked that in the time we've t- done the podcast. And did none of the producers or directors go, is this enough? Is this perilous enough, this, you know, not sleeping? <laughs> it seems like a bit of an afterthought, but take that... Um... John Stuart Newman, who did the screenplay, and also uh, director and co-writer Steve uh, Sean Koo, I should say. Shame on you both for yeah. lying. Yeah, yeah, I echo that shame. You yeah. think it would get past us on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> nay, good sir. The, no way, Jose. <laughs> the audacity, nay, the temerity <laughs> of it all. So he said. Um, so yeah. So he meets his son uh, at night as you observed and actually i didn't observe but you're absolutely right that's hilarious <laughs> like, Listen, you need to get some sleep but it's 3 a.m so get on out on the streets so he leaves and meets his son and they you know and then what's the, then he goes to pick up the money that was left for him right and yeah. this this scene made me anxious because he said to the son they get a taxi they get a cab and he says to his son yeah leave the meter running you stay here i'll be back in a minute and then he sort of fucks off for most of the day, doesn't he? Because then he disappears and he is digging for the money. And uh, I thought, when he came back, I was getting very anxious, thinking, man, that is going to be an expensive taxi. And that was that was more 
pressing. That was more of a ticking clock than the actual insomnia death that he was going to get. Um, <laughs> that's all I had to take away from that scene. <laughs> I mean, it's a fair point because they they made a point of a quick shot of the uh, the taxi meter, and it was like I think rounded up like one hundred and eighty dollars or something. Mm. And, and the son uh, wasn't curious as well. He wasn't like, hey, when are the bounds gone? Yeah, the old house, he's disappeared into the woods. Um, but, I mean, uh, that was understood. So he's gone to get the money, and he's gone to, you know, so, which I think it was the full amount. Then he's gone enough. Now he can spend some money on him and his son. So that was set up. That's out of the way. Now he can crack on with the movie, right? Um, and I must admit, there was, there was a few things that did frustrate me between here and the middle of the film. And I don't know if you noticed, but the... Rome, the love interest, right? The romance, which yeah. is a lady called what's her name as well? These notes are very poorly put together. Ah, so Carolina Widra as Simone, right? I thought that was one of the worst and clumsiest love. Yeah, you know, uh, oh, they've fallen in love all of a sudden. I thought that was one of the worst I've ever seen in a film, probably. It was like, hey, there's a prostitute, hey, we slept together, now we're in love. And it's, it's so rushed and so clumsy. I don't know what you thought of that, but I really hated that. Yeah, it was... I mean, there was a lot of things that could have easily been cut out of this. And I think with the sort of, air quotes, love interest here, and it's kind of like this was... They were trying to find synergy between two different films. There was one which was sort of the reconciliation of... Frank and Joey, mm-hmm. and they're trying to you know catch up, make up for lost time, and they're going out and getting suits and watches and phones and uh, doing donuts in cars in a car park. Mm-hmm. And then there's also um, a random love interest with uh, a sex worker. And then there's the will he won't he go and seek revenge thing. But it was like one plot had to stop so they could go and drive a car around. Yeah. And then another plot was like, oh, I'm going to go buy a gun. Then oh, I'm going to stop a plot because I'm getting a dinner with my son. Oh, the plot needs to stop so I can, um, so we can get on with some Cajun raw dogging in a Ferrari in the middle of nowhere <laughs> because reasons. But that, like I said, the whole, I, I can sort of understand to an extent why if it was just that one scene, it was like, oh, you, your mother's been dead for some time. I've not been with anyone for 19 years. Then. I was like, okay, like it makes sense contextually why you would probably find yourself in this situation. Um, But then the whole approach of it, because Frank and Joey are just sort of sitting outside on the car in their suits, and then a pimp just appears and knows knows that like Frank has got a rager. I was like, how? I mean, maybe that guy's just a good spot for clients. I mean, fair play to Trip. Um, Trip is an exceptional pimp. I got that from him immediately. <laughs> I mean, he he ain't tripping on his business model. Let's put it this way. <laughs> but uh, but it but it it is we. I think she kind of um, Simone, and then we find out her real name's Jennifer. It did come across because ultimately she just came across as almost. I don't know if this is the right term, but like plots very just thrown in shit against the wall plot fodder is the best Mm -hmm. term just so it was an excuse for frankie to talk about his past and then just throw money at her at the end yeah with a 38 year old one year old (laughs) the 38 year old boy (laughs) um 
it's I suppose like jumping ahead here because Simone's arc there's not massive amount to talk about there they have sex Frank gets attached he t- talks to her about his past um, and then because he's all dealing with insomnia and killing former gang members he forgets that they have a date planned goes to where she lives and before he goes on his final journey guns blazing journey he gives her the money that he's got left uh, but she's like pushing a pram and there's a man in it <laughs> <laughs> this bloke's about six foot three <laughs> and then, and then it's like oh it's like oh i'm really sorry like here's a hundred thousand dollars i just need to give it to someone i don't have any family left um and then he bl- leans down to the boy and he goes like, oh, what's your name? And he goes, it's Joey. Um, <laughs> Puts out his cigarette. <laughs> Joey. And, uh, and that was cl- I thought that was clumsy as well. Oh, he's named after my son. Oh, he's, yeah, same name as my son. This 38-year-old fellow is <laughs> six foot three, sat in his pram. <laughs> like, I didn't even have to like note it down because he says, like, oh, what's your name? And the boy goes, Joey. And then Cage's character just goes, of course. And I was like, why are you saying it? <laughs> Why is this a why is this a joke to you? Mm. <laughs> I was like, yeah. it's just very very clunky writing, just to try and have some kind of uh, like emotional think, like, resonance. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes, as a as a viewer, I think, man, I'm, I could almost be insulted by that. Who would? Who's going to watch out and think, man, that? romance is seamlessly woven into the tapestry of the film you know it happened i didn't even realize that love was unfolding like this and you know i just thought man that's that's annoying but you're right it like it also takes away from the other plots because i completely forgot after the spending spree and when he's fallen in love with this woman i forgot oh yeah he's got some cage raging to do he's got some he's got to actually sell the score and so then he goes and does that and you know um, which is pretty a lot of that's pretty cool actually i like i like seeing him in action my, my favorite film of his is conair and I'd, I'd like seeing him harken back to his sort of action days and he's not like mo you know particularly mobile but he's got he's good with the gun still and he looks ferocious whilst he's doing it so that was cool i mean like there are there are some kind of enjoyable action bits in this i think my favorite stuff about cage action these days is um i mean one there are numerous points in this in like little scraps when you could just you can just tell it's a stunt, man, and I'm like, ah, I got you. Yeah. Um, oh, which actually leads me, funnily enough, to one of my points, which was uh, unreasonable amount of chest hair once, right? So there's a couple of times where we, where we see him um, topless or wearing just a sort of like vest type thing, and there's moderate chest hair. Mm-hmm. And then at one scene, in that moderate and dark chest hair, right? And then there's one scene where he gets into the shower, and suddenly there's this untenable wig of grey hair spilling from every inch of his chest. And I thought, man, what was this? <laughs> I thought, well, we've really either skipped time or someone hasn't reminded him to, to shave that bad boy off. So that was one of my uh, one of my cons right there. <laughs> one of your cons, but not con airs. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's in that shower and he's like, this is a man who's like, understandably he's baffled by advancements in technology 20 years is a long time to be out of the life loop mm. um and then that that shower gets him and it's just like someone's brushed like the hand against the small of his back and he's like oh <laughs> 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 That's right. there are there are a number of bits in this where it it's 
there, there are certain films when I, I I don't think some things are supposed to be played for last, but they just come across because yeah. the films just aren't brilliant, and that was one of them. And then he had a lot of chest hair that he was grooming and lathering up, and I was like, here we go in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> here's the, here's the money shot, baby. <laughs> um, he is an actor's actor. He's, a, I think, for all intents and purposes, a good egg, um, and he's he's more than the memes uh, that people make him out to be. He's he's highly memeable though, but that's still going to be a skill because I think the internet is going to help with his. Um, Cage sense like do you know the you know Bre- Brennaissance, the Brendan Fraser and Keanu Reeves sort of revival of their character and image because the internet sort of fallen for them. I have my sense is that Nicholas Cage is on the precipice of that as well, where people go, do you know what? Actually, he's he's cool as hell and he's harmless and he just wants to make great movies and stuff. And I see him entering that sort of Brendan Fraser, Keanu Reeves sphere. Yeah, that's my prediction for him anyway. I think so, and. There was, there was an interview I read before where it's quite a, a good, like, long interview, and it, it sort of ended with um, him being asked, like, how do you want to be remembered and stuff? And he was saying, like, I think there was a lot of films of mine which are sort of being re evaluated and finding new audiences and stuff. And um, I think there's, and this is something I've said ages ago on the podcast, like, there's a lot of his films that will stand the test of time, like long after we're all gone from this mortal plane. And National Treasure. National Treasure. I mean, that's the, the one that will live on. <laughs> one of the, like, and I say this with ultimate respect, like the most when it's on ITV two, I will watch it movie. Of, <laughs> of, and I say that with like all due respect for National sure. Treasure because it's so much fun. Um, but he's got. Um, for all the bad films that he's got, and like he's got some guff, let's not beat around the bush there. He's got an untouchable repertoire of films. Uh, you know, Raising Arizona, um, Joe, Mandy, Connor, Face Off, oh, The man, Rock, yeah, Leaving yeah, Las yeah. Vegas, Adaptation, wow. um, Pig. Obviously, recently he's got like a list of highly accredited films that most actors in their entire working life could only dream of getting one of those. Yeah. Um, but you know, we we look at the memes, we look at the Willis comparisons, and um, and we end up watching the score to settle and trying to convince people that he is good. I swear. <laughs> yeah, but it's like um, I'm just trying to think of a analogy, but it's like he's just his innate caginess is evident even in pro- you know, canvases as bland as this, and he does still stand out. Um, but I mean, to of the film, um, let's get to. So where where were we? So there's a few more points I want to make about it because it wasn't it wasn't horrible. Like it wasn't a horrible film. It's like it's just like another switch your brain off and try and enjoy it type thing, right? Um, what did you make of the uh, the big reveal? What did you make of the <laughs> because it, it's something that would have been really cool if you hadn't seen it, yeah, you know, thirty times before. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those things where I, I think it did an adequate enough job in that it didn't outright telegraph what the twist was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose for the listener, the twist is that, drumroll please, uh, Joey's been dead the whole time and that Frank has been seen, what he's been seen has been a hallucination. Um, so Joey has never, never been there. Um, and that it turned out that. Uh, 
Q actually killed him because at some point, for reasons unexplained, uh, well, Joey turned to drugs and then he started working for Q, but Q was like, you're one of those untrustworthy drug users, as opposed to the trustworthy <laughs> ones. Um, and he was going to blab to the police at some point, so they had to kill him to keep him silent. Um, and that might have led, never outright says in the film, that might have been a contributing factor to why Frank has insomnia because he couldn't sleep. I'm trying to make this film more sense, make more sense than what it actually does. I would, I wouldn't put the effort in. I think we just, I, don't think, <laughs> I wouldn't work so hard. It's a, it's a strange <laughs> one. Um, it's not, it's not a bad twist, but again, like you said, it's. And I think with a lot of this film, maybe with the exception of the insomnia, this film takes a lot of parts of films that have already done this plot before and kind of jigsaws it together. Goddamn um, Shyamalan and Bruce Willis decades before. <laughs> Putting the shaman, shaman, shaman. So <laughs> there's just like it's it's not a bad twist. Although when it kind of happened, I think because this is one of those films. It's inoffensive enough, but it's there's so much fodder and just padding in this film that it's so easy. To, and as I said earlier, it's different point plot point. It's three different plot points. One, two have to stop so one can carry on, and it's just yeah. like this never-ending thing. Um, but it's all of it is just so instantly forgettable. Like I said, <laughs> like I said, like I said at the top, I forgot so many times where I was, what was going on. Yeah. Um, I've, I found myself just fading out as they were explaining plot points. I was like, yeah. oh, oh before, no! Before we started recording, a couple of hours before we started recording, I was at work perfectly confident that I'd be able to talk about it and remember it and so I thought oh, I wonder what we can talk about first and then n- nothing was there I thought I had to really work hard and really track back through my cerebral processes to to link to the other links that eventually found the memories of the movie and I was like what, is, what the hell was it oh I didn't I didn't really like the sun uh, Benjamin Bratt was in it that, and then I was like oh yeah yeah and then it sort of came back but man you're right that's a once it goes in and out doesn't it in this film again it's it's a great background film because you don't have to pay attention to it and then there's all these other little plot points that kind of don't necessarily mean anything i mean there's there's one that's kind of relevant and uh, frank's character has been carrying around the bloody baseball bat that his boss mm. killed that man with at the start because i think that's the weapon he's going to end him with and oh, settle the yeah. score with but then there's another thing where it turns out and it's not relevant to the film at all. He's like, like I used to make baseball bats. This is a Maplewood baseball bat. I once had forty orders. And it's like, cool, weird, weird flex bra, but you do you. Um, and there's, and it, this is one of those weird things where it's just like, oh, hotel, hotel, spending spree. Then he goes to buy guns. Back to the spending spree, mm-hmm. and and he's trying to find these people he used to work with in like the the mob he goes to find someone called sleepy but sleepy's been dead so he ends up speaking to sleepy's daughter and now this is sort of no disrespect to the character but she literally is not named in the film she's only referred to as sleepy's daughter oh. um and then sleepy's daughter's son not named is is gifted a maplewood baseball bat um oh, this, yeah. oh this, yeah yeah i remember there's flickers of a cooler character there because he's faced with those like youths with the guns and he's kind of like, 
that old, that classic old sort of jaded action hero thing is yeah. like, yeah. your gun is a piece of shit for these reasons. You ain't gonna do shit. And he's just like oh, almost yeah. like almost like John Wick in them, like staring that's down right. the barrel. And I was like, oh, that's for ten seconds. That was kind of cool. But then the yeah. film carried on. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Uh, but that doesn't really... He buys a gun, and he gets a silencer. Um, and then he, he he's slowly trying to work his way through people he used to work with in order to get to Max. Um, but one of my issues with, I guess, the casting almost, was that, like, obviously, we have, like, young Frankie at the start, who was actually paid uh, played by his nephew, um, Bailey um, Coppola, hence to us... Quite a striking resemblance played by his nephew there. But then obviously 20 years has passed and he's come out as a much older man. Naturally, that's how ageing works. But the people he was going after haven't really aged more than three years. (laughs) They were just too young to be the people he was after. I don't know if you sort of clocked that as well. Yeah, that's actually the first thing that I said to my girlfriend. Um, But I thought, I mean, I, I accounted for... What did I count? Oh, I counted for prison stress. I think what I was trying to do was give like was give them the benefit of the doubt as much as I can. I did it with all movies, but you're right, <laughs> and that was uh, yeah, <laughs> you're right. That was a good observation. There's that first guy he goes after who who's still uh, seventeen, isn't he? Still like <laughs> that, changed that, it all. that boy is older than the people he's going after. <laughs> uh, one of them is Jimmy, who he finds him in a massage parlor. Um, and then it's just this like hokey line. He's got a dragon tattoo, and he's being sort of like massaged by two like attractive young women. It's like you want to massage the dragon. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then Cage comes in, and he goes, "Bitches, leave." I was like, "Fuck, okay." I was like, Let, "Let's fucking go." Yeah, yeah. I almost turned off my TV and left my own house. That was it. He delivered that line, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Not even the best line of the film. Um, but then. What fucking annoyed me about this is like you think, oh, okay, we're gonna get into like finally we're gonna get into some action here because I think at this point as well he's he's promised his son is like I'm uh, my this this revenge is behind me I'm focused on you I'm not going after these people um, and I thought oh we're gonna get some kind of like action here maybe it's gonna be a, an all right fight scene and Jimmy just like slowly palms the machine gun yeah. out of his slaps it to the floor. <laughs> Cage gets like a sure body sprayed to the face. <laughs> yeah. And then they rough and tumble outside, and Jimmy runs away with the effort of a man with two broken legs going, nyah, 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 nyah. <laughs> and he, he laughs as he runs into the night with yeah. the same energy of, as Skeletor going, until next time, He Man. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and I was like, oh, fuck off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, yeah, I was the same. I thought that was so, that I thought that whole exchange was low energy, even from Nicolas Cage's part. I think that whole thing was, um, oh shit, guys, the film's out in three weeks. We need to quickly do this scene and just yeah, knocked it together in five minutes. That's the sort of vibes I got from that. It was uh, very poorly put together. Yeah. Except for bitches leave. I thought that hit home. Uh, that, that was uh, other than that. That was the sort of peak moment of that scene. <laughs> Bitches leave brought it up a bit, but yeah. one of my notes was that Jimmy went to put Frank in an armbar, and it was like, you just don't see armbars these days. That was nice. <laughs> good, yeah. good, good on, good on them for bringing the armbar back. <laughs> um, then there was another guy called Tank, um, who was another of his subordinates. I don't know how he found out about Tank. 
He just kind of turned up at a butcher. He uh, Tank was the one that was sort of resigned to his fate, wasn't he? He was a bit more sort of philosophical about it. Yeah, he's in the butchers, and then there's just a shot of Frank just taking a aggressive bite out of a pepper army, <laughs> which <laughs> which I burst out laughing at. But um, to be fair, Tank tell Tank tells Frank, "Fuck what a sentence." Tank tells <laughs> Frank that Max is in a retirement home, so we get right. we get something that makes sense at least. We do. I actually I didn't the actor who played Tank. I wonder if I've got him written down somewhere as well, but I thought he did an okay job because he his was um, his delivery was sort of undersold and a bit sort of uh, reserved. He resigned to the fact that um, Frank's going to kill him, and so I thought that was that was a nice little exchange. I thought that was a, I mean, like I said, I mean you you could done it a different way. You could have shaved a few minutes off here or there, but actually, and it was weird because it was like ah, this we'll, we'll do this important scene with Tank. As if Tank had been a more important character prior to that scene, but he. But I thought that was that wasn't too bad. I thought he did it quite well. They did well together. Yeah, I agree. I think it was a nice um, sort of change up from what we'd had so far. Someone who's like, I've been waiting for this day for nineteen years. You do what you got to do. Um, then he gets sort of executed, and that's kind of the mm. end of it there. But it's, that's what it's, I thought, man. Frank, it means business. Yeah. It, it, it took. I think this is kind of one of my issues with kind of the pacing as well. It kind of there was so much like music montage buying stuff and high uh, hotel hijinks that when it came <laughs> when when it came to stuff like that, that on paper should have had an impact. Yeah. Um, even though we're not, we don't really know anything about Frank, but outside of the, th- the three minutes that he's got here. It kind yeah. of just doesn't doesn't hit because there's the pacing and tonally this is all over right. the place. Yeah, I agree. And then the next scene is Frank playing a piano and he's going just playing, going, "I'm tying up loose ends." <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. apparently, apparently Nick Cage did learn to play play piano for this film, so above and beyond. Wow. Um, but I like that. I like the uh, his his quirkiness is why I watch him. Because you can't predict what he's going to do next or how he's going to deliver a line or anything like that. That's what makes him so magnetic as a performer. And the piano thing really exemplified that for me. Because I thought, man, I I just enjoy him. I enjoy watching him. I enjoy just letting him sort of... It's like when you... It's like keeping a Doberman in a house for a few days and it needs to go out. So you open the door and suddenly it, it's out. It's free. It's running around everywhere. That's what film does for Nicolas Cage. It releases him into his natural environment and you've just got to sort of let him play and do what he wants. And it's it's great. He is the kenneled Doberman of acting. <laughs> if I've said it once, I've said it a million times. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, you can't get a word out of me because I'm talking about the Doberman. Uh... Um, my note at this point was during the piano, as I've said a few times already, we're about an hour in. I don't know what's happening because I keep forgetting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. Uh, and then after this, we get Trip returns. Um, this is when he's, oh, yeah. Frank's having um, sort of an insomniac episode. He straight up collapses on the floor. The hotel worker just steps over him. And <laughs> just leaves him to die. Um, a different Simone turns up, but because he's scared, the OG Simone off. And then, he's, then he says to her, um, "Shut the fuck up and get out of here, you phony piece of shit." <laughs> so Simone, so and this is incredible. Like I can't stress it. Simone leaves, the door shuts. He immediately gets a call from Trip saying, "Like you motherfucker, you motherfucker." Uh, yeah, 
Yep, 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 yep. Like yeah, trip. Trip yeah, again. Trip, a, trip a got a psychic connection with everything that's going on in that building. That's why he was able to suddenly appear. He can apparate wherever he needs to be. And that's <laughs> either outside next to your cart or suddenly in your room. Yeah. I mean, one, Trip is a credit to his profession. Um, <laughs> and, uh, two, Trip can only be another hallucination because no one can be there as quickly as he is. Yeah. That's the only yeah, way he weird. makes sense. But like... Uh, Frank quickly escorts him out in like a headlock with the line, Excellent! <laughs> and tells him that he's very tired. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was cool. I thought, I mean, no, the, the trip stuff was obviously clumsy, but how he sort of dispatched him and stuff, I thought that there's definitely, um, if Nick Cage, there's a John Wick something there about him, isn't there now? When he gets, when he kicks ass as a slightly older Nick Cage, there's definitely John Wick vibes. I think he was, uh, I like when he throws down. It was, it was nice when he was sort of doing stuff and just not getting, um, vested by, um, a can of deodorant to the face and just yeah. completely, <laughs> and like, t- that takes away from the, uh, fear factor, doesn't it, of him, so. Tiredness aside, kind of undermines his um, <laughs> revenge mission. Yeah. Um, he gets a call from Joey after this has been kidnapped. Uh, he's then very easily rescued and bathed and recuperated back. And then uh, I noted at this point as well, and at this point he's also um, had that hotel employee in with him whilst he's been sort of roughing up trip, trying mm-hmm. to get him to go through his phone and. We're getting these hints of like, oh, there's no contact history, there's no call history, like, we don't know what's going on. Um, my note here was like, the hotel has been um, sadistically fine with his antics so far. <laughs> Very tolerant. Yeah. A lot Very of money, though, to be fair. He's been splashing the cash, so, yeah. I suspect he's been, the money has been talking there um, <laughs> and paying his, paying his way through that hotel. And well, perhaps Trip is uh, gone in with the management and said that guy's spending some money. Leave him alone. You can there's places you can head cannon with it. I think. I imagine it's going to be some kind of um, the Shining Overlook Hotel thing, and they're all just ghosts. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You're going to see a picture of like all the staff of the party there from like 1901 in cages there, like top and tails. Like oh. there was never a staff. There was never a hotel. This whole thing is a Nick Cage fever dream. Who knows what's real and what's not. <laughs> I mean, this far into the podcast, I don't anymore. Mm. <laughs> um, I think I'm I'm frozen in a hedge maze somewhere, and this is all in my head. Um, so, uh, I mean, after this, this is when we get the, the graveyard scene and the, the twist that you mentioned earlier. Um, I suppose circling background to that, because we get Lorraine's grave, who is Frank's ex-wife, and then yep. Joey's grave. Um I know we've saying it's something we've seen before, but when we get to this point and we're like, I don't know, an hour 10, an hour 20 into the film, yeah. um, if you recall, what were your sort of thoughts and feelings when we get in that twist as well? I mean, I did like it. I mean, it's not like the, the fact that it's been, that it's an old trope and it's been done a few times before doesn't take anything away from it. I just thought, um, I just wondered if there could have been an alternative thing. But then maybe they're not trying to shock you every time maybe it's just like okay well here he is here's the symptoms of his insomnia here the you know the 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 baggage of this character is the grief he carries and the love he carries for his son um you know he's a father never got to be a father and that sort of stuff i you know with is done well um but you could say that the supporting cast 
at times could help him to deliver a lot of these things and the movie the pacing as you mentioned could help him tell the story better but the actual twist itself uh i didn't i thought yeah it was okay it was fine i saw it coming though which is my thing um and if if i hadn't seen it coming i would have enjoyed it more but i just knew that that was on the i said i had one of those sort of dad moments where i said to my son and i said to my partner ah, well he, you know he'll be dead he, you know, and i predicted it and it was a cool trying to show off in front of my family thing but they also predicted it so um but yeah it's all right it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't the sixth sense as usual bruce willis is uh is proved to be the nemesis of something here always sticking his fingers in pies to which they do not belong <laughs> willis right. get yeah that's right it's, what did you think did you think it it hit home or did you uh did you were you surprised I think, like I said, because, again, the kind of pacing and tonally, this was kind of, it didn't know what plot to focus on. And I kind of right. wonder, even when talking about this now, if, like, if it would have just focused on the rekindling of a relationship, if it had just focused on the vengeance aspect, if it had just stuck to its guns for one of those. I wonder if it had just stuck to one of those sort of plot points instead, um, if it would have been a bit more structurally sound yeah yeah yeah. um i mean again like you i I didn't mind the the twists again you can sort of see it coming i mean some credit it wasn't um aggressively telegraphed or anything so for for some audience members there may be like like oh but i think that's kind of as much as a reaction as it will get i think like every every resolution to every plot point they had it was you know, you're you're thirsty in the desert and you there's a little bit of water and you drink that but you're still thirsty and you're still in the desert. I wasn't I wasn't satisfied with any of it. It wasn't like a, a properly quenching thing. Was, everything was like, oh man, I, I don't like to criticize the things of this really I don't like because I'm I'm I don't know what it takes to be a director or a producer and I I would never I couldn't I can't fathom the work, right? But it's time for I go, no one watched this back. No one watched the final edit and thought Maybe we should change that and chop that up. Maybe we should, you know. And every resolution to the plot was one of them. You know, you know what I mean. It wasn't wasn't properly satisfying or delivered in a way which left me, you know, thinking, man, that was good. They did the whole arc was good, delivery great. It was all a bit clumsy and faltering. I think that's kind of a pertinent point towards the finale as well. Sort of leaves yeah. you, and not in the good way of like, oh, leave them wanting more. It's kind of no, I more that I I needed. More. Um, That's right. Because even after this, when he goes to visit Max, we find out that Max has been in a medically assisted coma for fifteen years. Um, so I think this is, this is trying to give Frank like an emotional resolution. It's like I've been, yeah. I've been angry at you for all this time because I've been keeping my mouth shut. I've been hoping that you've been keeping your mouth shut, but you're here. Uh, and he sort of gives him the bloody baseball bat. I tried to I tried to reason with myself whether or not the the nurse should have told him that his old friend is in a coma because she because I didn't know I was like man should that nurse have given him a heads up because she didn't know that he didn't know and so she's going oh when's the last time you saw him as if like have you been here the last few months because you know and then he goes in and this guy's been in a coma for a couple of decades I thought I wonder if that nurse was <laughs> could have been a little bit more professional giving him a, a heads up about that whole operation. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
it's a fair point as well because she outright says he's only ever had one other visitor. Yeah. So she's well aware that no one else has ever been to visit him. <laughs> Just like behind door number one. Ta-da! It's your old friend in a coma. <laughs> so it, it kind of has to let um, this element of the score just go because there's there's nothing he can do about it. Um, and then after that, he's attacked by Jimmy and he's dealing with some hallucinations. And um, there's an action roll that was good. I liked it that he did an action mm-hmm. roll to the side, but then he shoots mm-hmm. him in, shoots him in the shin, and then in the crotch. Um, it's like like a oh the, the the dragon's dead. He makes some quip about a dragon and then shoots him in the head. <laughs> but that scene summed up a little something for me. Where when is it Jimmy? So when Jimmy popped back into the scene, what summed up the movie for me was I was like, oh yeah, that guy, Jimmy. Yeah, he's a he's a character. He's a thing. He's a, yeah. I completely forgot that guy existed and that he was a threat in some way. So that that's what that's why I knew I wasn't hundred percent engaged because every time a new a, a recurring character popped up, I'd go. Oh yeah, yeah, he's in it. Well, she's in it. Yeah, and I thought that was depressing. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I mean. Like a, a character pops up or returns, and you're just like, uh, uh, <laughs> "All right, okay, cool." Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then I, you know, I thought we were going to get something bigger in the finale, and um, at this point, we know that uh, Q, who he's visited earlier in the film, and Q. Previously in the film, has basically denied all knowledge. So I don't know anything. I'm out of the game. Um, we know that he's been keeping tabs on Max. He's the person who's been visiting Max. Q was responsible for um, Joey being killed. Um, so he goes to confront him at Q's daughter's wedding um, as a hostage. And it, this is when one of the great lines comes in. Um, <laughs> he's. It's like, oh, I'll just leave my daughter. Like, it's me that he has beef with. And then we get... And I can't stress this enough. Just Google Nicholas Cage beef. And you'll get 30 <laughs> seconds of cinematic brilliance. So you beef, yeah. beef. You had my son killed and lied straight to my face about it. And you think I've got beef with you. You think beef is an accurate description of what I've got with your father. Um, and it is... Truly genius. Yeah. It is cinematic brilliance at yeah. its finest only, only... I mean, this comes down to one of these things where I know in my heart of hearts that line was not in the script. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I sort of know that um, on the day, Cage absolutely ad-libbed that we got it in one take they weren't even filming the movie the camera had been left rolling and he was just sort of he was being offered a sandwich by someone and someone was saying oh listen we haven't got any chicken I know you want chicken Nicholas but we haven't got any chicken what we do have is beef and then they filmed his reaction to that and that's what it was (laughs) (laughs) beef (laughs) yeah brilliant but that's the proper like cageism isn't it I loved it I thought it was great I mean if if you come in for the cage rage, then I mean you've got to make it to like an hour thirty five through the film to get to it, an hour thirty through the film mm. to get to it. But oh boy, does it deliver! <laughs> and my my one word review of this film is just beef question mark exclamation mark because because it all yeah I'm with you. I'm one hundred percent with you. I thought it was great. Um, 
didn't uh, it didn't take too much away from the scene he's going mad he's you know he's got that deathly insomnia uh it was <laughs> it is what it is and uh, yeah I, I enjoy i enjoy him and it but i wait for it i wait for the you know i, I sense there's a, a cageism coming and there it is I mean, there are films, like I say, similar to this in the 2010s where the cagism doesn't come at all. It's kind of understated throughout. And mm -hmm. so for um, the people looking for it, it's there. You've got to work for it, but it is there. Um, there must be a compilation video of these by now, is there? There is absolutely a video called Nicolas Cage Losing His Shit um, <laughs> from like 10 years ago. But it's not updated enough to include beef, unfortunately. Right. Um, so maybe an, an updated version will be released at some mm. point in the next few years. We can only for it. the the people want it. The people are calling they for yeah. it. They are baying yeah. for blood. They are baying for beef. Um, but in terms of like waiting for things, um, we get to the finale here, and this is why again Q confesses, as we said earlier, as to why he did what he did. Um, and then Frank could kill Joey, but he remembers his son's mantra: like today is the day to start again or I wrote it down somewhere uh, today is the day to try again is what he had tattooed and he sort of was like uh, and he goes to walk out uh, Q's daughter shoots him in the back and he's just like oh, just keep just just keep walking just keep yeah. walking yeah yeah he takes it like Cameron Poe bullet to the back poof, takes that hit and, uh, <laughs> which is strange for a you know fatigued frail older fella but yeah he, he took it well I mean, when all you want is just a comfortable bed, it's not a great day, is it? And, That's right. And I, I didn't realise until this point in this film as well that he'd also been shot in the front. So I think he must have got shot in the uh, the Jimmy fight. Oh, yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, the Jimmy thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I completely missed that. And I was like, oh, I did shit. to be fair. I, I'm with you. I just assumed it was, uh, um, yeah, the character previously known as Jimmy who had popped up once and shot him. I, I thought that was the case. Yeah, the um the deodorant devil himself, Jimmy. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, Frank leaves, <laughs> surrounded by police. Um, yeah, and then he he basically gets gunned down by the police. They think he's reaching for a gun, but he's reaching for for Joey's baseball card. Yeah. So he's lying dying on the church stairs. He sees Joey's, I guess, spirit at this point. And then the final line is as he's fading from this world. Um, he's like, oh, Jerry, what are you doing here? And he's like, no, I just came to hang out. Film ends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, gee yeah. whiz, to put, you know, take the wind out from your sails. But yeah, with yeah, I'm with you. And it's, it was uh, when it finished, it was a sort of oh, oh, that's that's the reaction. Oh, that's the noise I made when it finished. I, you know, I mean, it wasn't. A, but by, by the time you've watched half the film, you're not expecting some dramatic you know genre defining ending are you but you are expecting to something more um the, even the the baseball card thing i was like oh there's the payoff to the baseball card from earlier and uh, just a bit sort of nothing you know yeah i was quite just nothingy nothing there's no emotional resonance i didn't really care uh that's that's how i felt at the end yeah i think i can i can only sort of agree with you because it it sets up some interesting points right at the start that kind of underwhelms at every possible point where it could sort of do something interesting. The two, three-minute butcher scene with Tank is kind of intriguing because it's mm. we've seen two characters with remorse. It would have been so much better if we they had established Tank more as a character before that. But it's just a sort of yeah. face in the background, isn't it? So. 
Yeah, just just a face in the background. But like I say, it's it just seems to be a lot of plot points. They don't never know which one to focus on, and then it's just a an underwhelming ending of two dying people broing out. That's um, right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and that's uh, that's it. That's the movie. And um, what were you? I mean, where does it land? Do you have a Nick Cage movie scale? I mean, wh- where would you where do you place it? Uh, straight to DVD is where I would place it. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, it would it would probably be bottom to mid. I think it's not the worst Nicolas Cage film, but it's just not. There's a lot of similar films around this time frame which are just just thin. Just throughout the film, it's just it's just thin, just lacking, quite hollow. Mm. Um. And I was, I was trying to look for like more information on the outside of this. It seems the director did quite a few interviews to promote it. Nicolas Cage, as far as I can tell, at least I could be wrong, uh, did not promote this film in any way, shape, or form. Oh, really? Couldn't find that he did any interviews for it. Um, but the director said of Nicolas Cage that he was a joy to work with and a generous actor, and it was a pleasure to work with him. Oh, um, and uh, my check to him for saying that is in the post. Um, the only other thing of slight interest is um, I noticed right at the start of the film there was about and maybe this should have been an indication of what was going to happen there was about 10 different production companies at the start of the film that you've never heard of before right. and they kept <laughs> they kept coming up and I was like there's no way so many companies worked on this but one of them was Saturn Films which is Nicolas Cage's production company of which he is an executive producer well, he owns it. He was an executive producer on this film. My only concern, as it has been in previous episodes, that it is impossible to find information on Saturn Films. There's no website. There's no social presence. I think it's a money laundering firm. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the only way a lot of these choices make sense, is that he's bankrolling these bad movies to try and get like money or something. Ah. The the investigation behind the scenes continues. Um, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't see Brendan Fraser or Keanu Reeves anywhere near anything like that. So maybe that's a maybe we need to get to the bottom of this before letting him enter that good guy sphere. Because you're right, that sounds very suspicious, and we should investigate immediately. Behind the scenes of the podcast, there's a big cork ball with like Polaroids and newspaper clippings and just like a pins and string. string. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And there's something like question marks on the floor going, it doesn't make any sense. So Saturn Films, I will get to the bottom of you. I will figure you out before this is said and hey, done. Hey, Saturn Films, now there's two of us. Now, we can, now you're getting double pronged. I'm going to be looking into it as well. So uh, we'll, we'll, let your, we'll let your listeners know if we get to the bottom of that. Because I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to make a note to Google that the second we're done here. <laughs> I mean, before we're done, we'll just be two dying people on steps hanging out like at the end of this film. <laughs> Saturn films. I can see like a red laser just on the side of my cheek now peering through the window. Saturn films knows that I'm talking. Mm. Um, but with, with, that, uh, with that all said and done, as we sort of come towards the end of this episode, uh, in, in the Jerry Springer sense, what would be your, your final thoughts on 2019's A Score to Settle? There, um, when I finished watching it, I considered Pokemon, <laughs> as I always do with all things. My frame of reference for everything I do, 
the infrastructure of my mind, the default is Pokemon. And I think uh, for a different example, you can consider football. But I think there is in Pokemon, if you're doing the professional Pokemon VGC sort of battling online, right? There's there's a massive pool of nearly a thousand Pokemon that you can choose from, but you normally have like a meta game of just a handful. And I think you don't this you could choose one of any two hundred fire type Pokemon, but there's always one that does it better than the others, right? And then so and the way I thought about this film was it's just like that. It's just like a it's a moderately powerful Pokemon. So there we are. <laughs> so that's my that's my take. You there's there's fifty Pokemon that do it better. There's fifty Pokemon that do it worse. It wouldn't make your first team, but you wouldn't be too pissed off if it's it's there. So uh, there we have it. That's the hot take. <laughs> it's the uh, the Pokemon you recruit from the branches when three of your team has been uh, been fainted at that point. That's, that's right. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I suppose yeah. that a question I didn't never thought I was going to ask on this podcast. Mm. Uh, what Pokemon would you think Nicolas Cage is? Nicolas Cage is um, there's a couple of like the mythical ones, right? They're sort of a little bit maybe later gens. One called uh, Hooper, who was just this. Uh, are you familiar with Pokemon? And you do you keep up to date with that sort of thing? I will be completely honest. I played Pokemon Blue. And then I didn't play it until Pokemon Y. And then I started Pokemon Let's Go, Eevee, because my partner keeps up with it. But all um, I know is that in this day and age, there's a Pokemon that's a bin bag. There's a Pokemon that's a cup of tea. <laughs> po- Pokemon designs are running out of ideas is all that's that right. I know for sure. <laughs> so that's a, a, that's lim- right. a limited 150 frame of reference for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've um, we've my company produces uh, one of the top Pokemon podcasts in the UK, and I'm the host of one of them. So we've always sort of been in that sphere. And um, there's a Pokemon called uh, Hooper, who is just a sort of strange mercurial thing that can pop in and out of dimensions, just f- for the fun of it. No real malice. Does just nips in and out of reality whenever it pleases, and that's that's Nicolas Cage to me. Not quite human. Not quite Pokemon. <laughs> So he exists on multiple multiple planes, yeah. Uh, and this is something we've <laughs> I've been almost unintentionally discussing at this stage in the podcast. Nick Cage and the multiverse of sadness it expands <laughs> still because there's me thinking like, oh god, he's got a bit of a spoon bendy um, uh, Alakazam vibe about oh, him. Yeah, he yeah, he gives really me good. he gives me the vibe of a spoon bender because. <laughs> Bizarre cage, but I think I can, I think I can go for a Hooper. I will take your word on Hooper. Yeah, Hooper, and, or, and do some digging. Although I do like Alexam. Alexam's much more serious with that sort of powerful, playful aspect. Not if, uh, we'll go we'll go Alexam Hooper. Alexam Hooper, Alaka Hooper, Hooper Gazam, Nicholas Cage. I'm your man. <laughs> um, <laughs> so on, on that Pokemonorific. Uh, bombshell uh, Steve Kalis it's left for me to say thank you so much for joining me on the episode uh, for the listeners uh, where can we find you on that their socials and otherwise you can just head to uh, kalismedia.com c-a-l-i-s media.com everything's there everything my company produces is all on there uh, Twitter maybe just wherever you are on this sort of um, 
social media sphere just find Kalis Media you'll find us but it's all on the website so uh, that's the best all of our podcasts we produce all of our sort of community work that we do it's all it's all there amazing stuff and as ever links in the description below but with that said it is time to wrap up this episode on a score to settle and settled it has been uh steve Kalis. once again thank you so much for joining hey, me thanks for having me bud absolute pleasure uh and to the listener thank you for listening if you have been we'll catch you on the next one but until then as ever and always keep on keep on caging it's all you have to do thank you take care and goodbye Beef!